Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm your host, Harriet Hendel. Today, we're following a theme that we started two podcasts ago. Uh, we had a member of the staff of the Pennsylvania Innocence Project with us for two podcasts, Clay Waterman, who did intake at the project. Um, today, we have Mal Raghunathan, who is a specialist in re-entry, very different from uh, you know, her, her colleague, Clay Waterman. Uh, and we will explore what, what her job is at the project. But I, I just wanted to go and um, just review a little bit about the Innocence Project in Pennsylvania, just in case people are tuning in for the first time. They opened their doors in 2009 having been founded by a group of lawyers as a nonprofit, and its home is at Temple University in Philadelphia. Students, student interns play a key role. They are from Temple, Villanova, Drexel, the University of Pennsylvania, Rutgers, and Penn State uh, schools of law. Now there is an additional office of the project in Pittsburgh, and that's where Mal is. Over the last 12 years, 20 men and women have been exonerated. And I also wanted to mention the executive director is Nan Feiler. Um, before we meet Mal, I wanted to alert my listeners to a special day that has been set aside for the past six years, and that is Wrongful Conviction Day on October 2nd. If you've been listening to the podcast for the last couple of years, you know this issue is closest to my heart. Please think about donating whatever you are able to your state's Innocence Project. And if you live abroad, several countries also have Innocence Project. That's the one way we can all help. So I want to welcome Mal. I just want to tell you she is in educator and social worker who provides exonerees with re-entry services. She is passionate about supporting people as they navigate their unique life circumstances. And she envisions a world free from surveillance, punishment, interpersonal and state-sanctioned violence. Welcome, Mal. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. I'm glad you are here as well, because this is a very important topic. Tell us about the job that you do at the Pennsylvania Innocence Project. Yes, of course. Um, so as you know, the work of the Pennsylvania Innocence Project does not stop after litigation. Um, so my position as a reentry social worker um, is to really work through to provide supportive and reintegration services for our clients um, once they leave the prison system. So this looks pretty varied depending on the client as you can imagine, but um, essentially assessing their needs and ensuring that they have access to whatever resources and supports they need um, to achieve their goals now that they're home. Um, so that means helping clients and their families access counseling, um, the gamut of case management. So assistance with benefits, resources, transportation, housing, education, employment, you name it. 
Um, we also run a support group for our clients and we're looking to continue building and expanding our re-entry services in the future as well. And why is it that you are in Pittsburgh and not in Philadelphia? Tell us uh, about that. Yes, um, it, it actually, I had lived in Boston for many years and my husband and I had relocated to Pittsburgh oh. um, and it, you know, good fortune. We found out that there was a Pennsylvania chapter, Innocence Project chapter in Pittsburgh. Um, so I've only been working with them for the last year or so, um, which is the same time when I had moved to Pittsburgh. I see. And before you joined the project um, mm -hmm. in your present position, did you do any similar work, you know, like this or is this very different? Yeah, not really. Um, I was actually a special educator, so I worked in oh. schools. Yeah, <laughs> coming from kind of a different world. Um, but, you know, I have been following the work of the project for many years um, on the Innocence Network in general. I see. So it was only, I had started my Masters of Social Work program at the University of Pittsburgh and by way of that, um, been connected to the project. All right. So special ed, that's close to my heart. I taught children with learning disabilities for 30 years. So oh, wow. it's the, the helping profession, right? So you're, mm -hmm. you're helping a different population in what you do now. Um, so do you um, get to see the um, exonerees as they are coming out? Do you visit them? How, how does that work that you connect to them? So personally, I've worked with the project since the beginning of the pandemic. So I actually have not had an opportunity to see any of our clients in person. Um, all of my work is virtual, either via Zoom or FaceTime or um, on the phone. But ideally, we would be, you know, supporting them in person in addition to um, a virtual space. Yeah. I see. Uh, is that going to change, do you think, uh, in, in time? Absolutely. Um, that's how it used to be prior to the pandemic. So we're hoping that, you know, there's going to be a gradual transition towards um, seeing our clients in person again. And tell us, if you can, uh, about how many clients you deal with. And then the, the other side of the state, uh, they have a, a different list. Is that how that works? So we work off the same caseload um, oh. and we essentially have about 25 to 30 clients that we're supporting at any given time. Um, you know, not all of them have just come home recently, right? Like we have people who've been home for 10 years, some who came home a few months ago. So it's pretty varied in terms oh. of what we do for them, um, depending on their need, of course. Um, it just so happened that, you know, most of our clients are out of the Philly area primarily. Oh. Um, but it's only, it's also only recently that we have someone in Pittsburgh and someone in Philadelphia. So that is also a very new. That's, that's um, great because how, how would, how would the people in Philadelphia, how far, I don't know how far apart the, the two cities are. Do you know? About four and a half hours. Oh, that's yeah, a lot. Farther than you think, right. <laughs> that's a lot. So, yeah, it would mean in other times, non-COVID times, uh, that kind of travel. And Absolutely. bless Zoom, right? <laughs> because right. You, that's great. It's wonderful. Now, um, there is a very 
large difference between somebody coming out of prison who was wrongfully convicted and what happens in terms of their benefits or lack of, and someone coming out of prison who did the crime, did the time, and now it's time to go home. So can you explain that there's a, like a disconnect, I guess I would say, I don't know, would you say that between the two? Definitely a huge um, difference, for sure, in, in what they're able to receive. Um, and that's a, a great question and a very important one that often people don't um, understand, especially in terms of our clients. So for people who come home who are paroled, so they're parolees, uh, many states have programs to help them. Um, integrate back into society at large, right? That's who you think of when you think of a probation officer. There's a certain way that things need to be done for this person. You're aiming to, you know, your, your focus is recidivism and ensuring that they have what they need so they don't end up back in prison. Um, but to date, there are zero state-funded programs that are available for exonerated people to access for any kind of benefits. Um, in fact, in some states, they are actually ineligible for job training and reintegration programs that are available to people on parole. Um, you know, which means in some ways we treat innocent people uh, who've served large amounts of time in prison worse when they come home. And, and um, why, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but it, it's so hard to understand. Why is that? Um, great question that I don't have an answer to. Wow. Um, I think partially people are, I think awareness is definitely a factor. People don't often think about wrongful conviction and people who are impacted by it. Um, especially those who think that the, you know, the criminal justice system is working well. Um, but I think another piece to know is that if there are reentry services that are accessible, they're actually not a good fit for our clients who are exonerated. Because like I said, they, you know, their the services exist to target criminal risk factors or for, you know, to prevent recidivism. Um, but for people who are on parole, there's also a certain amount of transition planning that they have access to before they're released. Um, so they're introduced to the person who's going to, you know, work with them on their case. They're they're allowed to kind of plan for what this transition will look like. Um, for our clients, you know, they, they, they hear of their release within days of when it happens. Um, so essentially they're, they're, there's no central structure to connect them to services um, and they have to navigate this period on their own. And, you know, they're essentially abandoned by the state. That's just, it's so discouraging um, that that happens to them when they never should have been in prison to begin with. Exactly. And then in a way they are victimized all over again. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. yeah. So um, in terms of uh, wanted to bring this up, uh, we often talk about uh, compensation. Mm -hmm. um, how explain a little bit about compensation and um how how that works for people in Pennsylvania? 
Right. Um, so in Pennsylvania, there is no compensation um, for people who have been wrongfully convicted of a crime. Um, we're in the process of trying to advocate for some effort. Um, in fact, some of our clients are involved in the advocacy effort. Um, hopefully that happens at some point. But in other states, um, there is compensation, but again, in varying amounts. So I think right. Minnesota, for example, um, it's a very limited amount per year. I want to say maybe 5,000 or something, but in a different state, you know, they've agreed to 50,000 for every year that someone was wrongfully convicted. That's right. Florida being um, one of them. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. And, and also uh, Texas is 80,000 for mm. every year. So, you know, look at the difference you just told us about right. Minnesota and then you, you know, if you're in Texas, but there are approximately 15 states that offer nothing and Pennsylvania uh, is wonderful. one. And that's why I asked you the question because I knew the answer, but yeah. uh, it's uh, how, uh, do you know how long um, there has been an effort to get a compensation uh, statute in, in the state of Pennsylvania? Um, no, I don't think so. Although I, I, I know that it's something that, you know, certainly people have wanted for a long time, but I'm not sure of, of the formal kind of yeah. efforts in place. Yeah. That's good to hear, though. I didn't know that, that um, some of your exonerees are working on it. Who, who better right. than them? Because they, they are impacted by it. So when someone um, comes out, uh, ha when, when you work with someone, uh, what are the first things that you do as a caseworker for these exonerees to help them over the difficult, difficult transition? when they come home. Right. Um, I want to begin to answer that question by saying, you know, the average number of years spent in prison by someone who was wrongfully convicted and exonerated um, is 13 years. Mm. So that means, you know, we have clients who've spent at least a decade and we have some who have been in prison for three or four decades. Um, one of the attorneys once told me when I started my internship that our, you know, our clients leave prison with a shirt on their back and that's it. So people are really coming home with, you know, that you might have family and friends, but in terms of, you know, there is no compensation bill. So, you know, you're not getting money. Um, you're not getting an apology or official acknowledgement of what has happened to you. Right. Um, sometimes they have no place to live. Sometimes, few or no job skills because they've been in prison for that long. Um, so it really depends on the situation. But in general, we kind of try to conceptualize what they need in terms of the short term and the long term. I see. Um, so in the short term, right, they need a lot of support in this critical period. That looks like um, seeing what kind of identification they have access to. Sometimes it looks like getting a birth certificate after, you know, three, four decades. Um, and then a state ID, benefits assistance. Do they have a place to live? Um, do they have a bus pass? Do they know mm -hmm. how to navigate transportation? Um, so whatever needs to be attended to immediately, um, counseling and therapy, certainly a huge yeah. part of that. Um, 
and in the long term right thinking about okay what do you need in order to feel like you have what you need to achieve the goals that you want to at this point um, so so in terms of some of the things that you mentioned there's so much that one person needs um let's say they have nowhere to live um who who helps find them a place immediately as you say they have very little notice before they're told okay you're leaving right. uh so they may not have anywhere that they can go is that something you do yes that is certainly a part of, of my responsibilities um i would say thus far we have been fortunate enough that you know our clients have come out with at least having housing in place because they have support from their family and friends um and oftentimes that is a difference as well right because they're wrongfully convicted they tend to have more support oh. from their networks um during their time in prison as well as upon their release not always the case but right. for the most part um so we actually thankfully have not had to navigate a situation where someone has come home and you know has no access to housing um at the very least they have access to some kind of temporary arrangement but um anything from when they come home is essentially you know part of the social worker's responsibility to um so in terms of employment is that a very difficult piece because they're going to be asked what's your work history what have you been doing for the last as you say 13 years maybe absolutely um and like i said because you know some of our clients were incarcerated in their teens mm -hmm. um so they went to prison when they were 16 or 17 years old and are now being released in their late 50s 60s So despite the fact that they've worked in prison right for four decades in this world they are seen as having few to no job skills um and you know how do you explain the gap right yeah. so they have a criminal record even though their conviction was overturned there is still a record on file um so oftentimes it, it it's a lot of explaining to employers and hoping that they will understand your circumstances and give you a chance. When you say they um have a criminal record can is that um generally expunged at some point in time so that it isn't there? It can be but it's not automatically. It is not. Yeah. So again another system to navigate, right? To get the record expunged, a record that should have never been there in the first place. Now if they were teens when they went in chances are they probably didn't know how to drive is that Right absolutely up? absolutely and, and again how does how do you address that Yeah that happens all the time Is um, is there something there that you know is is uh, helpful to them similar to anyone else i think in that situation of getting all the identification in place so you can get a learner's permit right and start taking classes have access to a car um it's a lot of hoops to jump through yeah. for sure um it, do you have a particular uh specialty or skill uh, that 
you use in terms of all those things they need are, you know, is one thing easy for you to approach and other things difficult for you to approach? Oh, that's an interesting question I never <laughs> thought of. Um, I think navigating uh, state assistance and welfare is, is hard for me to approach. And why is, um, why is that difficult? It's navigating the portals. It's just dealing with the <laughs> Social Security Administration. It, mm-hmm. it, it seems like there's so much bureaucracy right, yeah. involved. Um, and again, oftentimes, because our clients have been in prison for so long, some of the documentation that the office requires, they don't have access to. Um, so it's, it's everything that could be one or two steps for us is, is 10 to 12 steps at that point. Yeah. Um, so I think certainly that feels like something that's more difficult to navigate. Um, but I think setting up, setting people up with resources, right? Like connecting them to education or referring them to job training programs, that feels much easier because of the relationships that we have with community partners. Um, all right. So community partners, who who do you partner with to help some of these people? Yeah. Um, so primarily because most of our clients have been um, in the Philly area, most of our partnerships are around there, okay. although now we're expanding to the rest of the state as well. Um, one of the places that we often work with, um, the Philadelphia Reentry Coalition, a really great community organization. And um, they have, you know, they, they have committees that work on different aspects of what people need when you think of re-entry support. Um, OIC is another, is another place that we often refer people to, the Opportunities Industrialization Center, mm. also in Philadelphia, and then um, the Institute for Community Justice. So all of these places, they prioritize re-entry, right? So it makes our work easier in a way to connect with them. They understand the need. They understand um, the difficulties. Now, are those places or organizations that you mentioned, are they for the wrongly convicted or for anybody coming out of prison? They're for anyone that's coming out of prison. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So they're, mm-hmm. that's wonderful. Oh, that, that's really great. Um, well, um, well, let me see if I, I'm sure we have other uh, questions that I can ask you. Um, are, do you have um, some success stories that uh, you, you know, we're, we're, almost, we're almost out of time. So maybe uh, what we can do is um, uh, have you come back and talk to us again. Would you be willing to do that? Oh, absolutely. All right. Because this topic is so very, very important um, in the scheme of things. And maybe, uh, I know you haven't been with the project all that long. What did you say? About a year? Yeah. About a year. A little over a year. So you're still relatively new. But um, do you have uh, maybe a partial success story you could share with us for the next time? Absolutely. All right. That sounds wonderful. Well, I think we will, we will talk about that. And uh, I, I'm delighted to have people learning more about the issue of reentry because I think we really don't think about it. We see someone in the newspaper or on TV coming out of prison 
and that's a happy story, but right. we don't see the other side, what happens right. after that first day, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. it's not, I don't think it's publicized enough. I really don't. Right. So I, I'm delighted to have you with us today, Mal, and um, welcome to have, you know, welcome you back uh, for our next podcast. We will be talking some more about reentry. Thanks for listening today, and uh, please come back and join us again, my listeners. And thanks for listening.